This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Michael Judd. And uh, for those of you that have not listened to the first episode that I did with Michael Judd, it sparked a fire and piqued an interest, and we had a little bit that we wanted to talk about um, about agroforestry, and we got so sidetracked because I had so many other curiosities that we never truly got into it. And uh, pretty neat, some of the stuff that you can do. So I had Michael come back on. And Michael, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Michael Judd here. I practice agroforestry, permaculture design. I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Maryland. Uh, we have about a 25-acre research educational site uh, that grows mushrooms, has food forests, does a lot of work with uh, commercially viable nuts, um, do a lot of workshops and hands-ons here, a lot of good documentation of actually how to uh, in regards to perennial agriculture, working with water on your landscape, a lot of things that we'll, we'll dig into today as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm just a real fictionado 
uh, for sort of creating the change uh, that we want to see in the world. Yeah, no, last time you and I talked it, so many things were thrown at me. It was almost hard to digest, but uh, as you and I were speaking earlier, I totally dove into some of them head first. I've already had two flushes of oyster mushrooms and consumed those, grew those on my kitchen table on uh, some some different substrates and um, trying to grow a lion's mane seems to be proving a little bit more difficult to do, but working on that. And then as I told you, it's inoculation day for other mushrooms. So super cool about that. But let's talk about agroforestry and what it is exactly. So let's give like a agroforestry 101 kind of synopsis real quick before we start diving into how you can do it for different uh, habitats of animals and things like that. So agroforestry, if you break the word apart, you know, you've got agriculture and you've got forestry, you know, it's incorporating trees into agriculture. It's really something that's ancient, something that we've done uh, as humankind since our existence uh, and interacting with trees for food, for the fibers, for shelter, uh, for, for medicinals. Uh, for the wildlife that are attracted to eating the foods from the trees that get hunted, you know, trees have been, you know, a keystone in many ecosystems uh, for humans and others to exist. So it obviously has had different iterations uh, throughout time and throughout cultures. Uh, but here we are sitting in the modern day and agroforestry is taking you know new form it has to fit into our economics it has to fit into our cultural lens uh, so it's kind of fascinating where we are now with trees and agriculture and food and land use and our and our environment at large and climate change uh, so agroforestry once again is a keystone it's really bringing the different elements uh, to, to our well-being and existence on this planet. Um, I would say a, a more definitive definition is that agroforestry is an approach to land use that incorporates trees and shrubs into agricultural systems uh, and allows for the production of trees, crops, and or livestock from the same piece of land. So it's a way to integrate uh, you know, your, 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 your fruits, your, your wind breaks, your riparian buffers, and it's also an opportunity to integrate your livestock and animals into it, or, you know, create an ideal hunting space that also has all of these other myriad of environmental benefits. So there's quite a few categories to agroforestry and the, the USDA uh, actually has a whole department of agroforestry. And they've, they help outline uh, these different practices. But let me, let me stop there for a minute and, and hear what you'd like to ask. So I'm just kind of curious, because um, you see a lot of times, a lot of people, they have land that they manage for, for certain species, we'll say whitetail or whatever. And they plant certain crops, uh, you know, turnips, beets, um, brassicas, 
all those types of things as well as clover, chicory, things like that. So they kind of have some browse throughout the entire year. What what would be different or the same about agroforestry versus that? Well, I, I'm going to go out and say that 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 is agroforestry. You know, there's obviously some some strong definitions being formed about agroforestry, especially since it's got a USDA department dedicated to it. And, and by default, a lot of these, these entities need to define things. But I like to be more freeform uh, with the understanding of, of many different ways that we can work with integrating trees into our landscapes. And not just trees, but multi-purpose trees. And so if you're going to plant a tree, you know, why not, you know, add as much function to that effort as possible? Uh, you know, can it produce nuts? Can it be fruits? Can it be medicinal? Can it feed wildlife? Can it fix nitrogen and build soil? You know, there are trees and select varieties of trees that can bring forth, you know, a maximum uh, of benefits. And what you're saying is very similar to that. So hunters are, are planting a lot of times nut trees or persimmons, things with high sugar content, uh, maybe things that drop at a certain time of year uh, when, when the hunting season is ideal. And this is great. That's great design. It's bringing in the benefits that you get from having those trees, which will be to stabilize the soil. It helps prevent the erosion. It helps build the water cycle. You know, it helps build the fungal environments in the soil, you know, it's habitat, it's all these things, and as well as, you know, benefiting the hunting grounds. So, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm all about exploring, you know, specifics for an agroforestry designed, you know, hunting, uh, because the hunters are already in position uh, to, to be planting, you know, trees because they're focused on it. Um, so I see it as a as a as a group that is really sort of ripe um, for working with, and we can we can kind of explore the idea of of how would you do an agroforestry for hunting, and maybe an organized pattern that allows for some maintenance. So let's say you have a hay field and you're wanting to convert that uh, into something that's going to draw in more wildlife for hunting. Uh, so, but you still need to cut your hay, right? So what I would recommend is ideally first, anything that has slope to it is doing some sort of passive water harvesting design on it. And that can be anything from actually digging out, um, berms and basins, what we call swales, swales on contour, uh, that can be done with a plow attachment on the back of a tractor, a double bottom plow and plow along contour. And that'll help rip up the soil and create a space where water falls in. And since it's on contour, which means it's perfectly perpendicular to the slope, that water will stop and sink in and hydrate the landscape, not just for that little berm that's been created, but for 30, 40 feet down slope, it'll begin to improve the soil quality uh, through holding consistent moisture. So you could do that. You could get out there with a, uh, with a back, uh, backhoe or, you know, a, a miniature uh, excavator, and you could actually dig out those swales as well. Uh, there's also uh, deep shank uh, rippers, and these are basically metal boots 
that go down into the earth and get pulled behind a tractor and they rip, you know, a couple feet deep. This, this would be done on contour as well. So if you're going through and you're ripping your soil, as that water comes down the landscape and falls into those rips, it begins to hydrate. It begins to sort of sponge up the soil with that water. So taking the time and consideration to learn about passive water harvesting before you even begin to plant trees is key, especially on sloped land. Uh, otherwise, water tends to really sheet off you know, grass is like green concrete, you know, most landscapes that have, that have been cut, you know, for a long time are either used for agriculture or hay. They're very smooth and that water will just sheet off and leave that soil pretty much dry, even after heavy rains. So we want to get that soil to hydrate, that builds soil fertility, and then it, whatever is growing there will grow many times uh, faster, better, and stronger. And even if that's just your hay crop, it's going to do good. Even if it's just your pasture, it's going to grow better. Uh, but then incorporating tree crops into that then sets the stage for that long-term water holding and soil holding and soil building. Um, so my first recommendation would be look into passive water harvesting. And then you could go along and pattern your planting so that you could maintain, say, mowing your hay. And so, for example... Uh, I would space my rows for nut trees 40 feet apart, right? And within those rows, I would probably do my plantings uh, every 20 feet. So if we're talking about hybrid chestnuts, which is one of the best uh, tree crops to plant uh, for humans, for wildlife, uh, uh, for even livestock. And partly that's because they're annual bearers. They will bear annually. And if you have the right genetics, which in the U.S. in many parts is proving to be the Asian uh, Molissima uh, species of the chestnut. And they are very blight resistant. Uh, they're beautiful, productive trees um, that are very tough, drought tolerant, and precocious they'll begin to uh, you know produce nuts as little as in little as six years from planting so many things to be said about them but let's use them as the example so in row we're planting every 20 feet are our, um, our hybrid chestnuts and ideally you're also sort of intermixing that so it's not just a monoculture of one type of, of tree so maybe every fifth tree you put in a honey locust or a black locust. The honey locust, actually, if you get ones with select pod production, can also be a major attractant for wildlife, uh, also a good um, livestock feeder, and just an amazing tree for bees all around. So the honey locust with good pod production is a good integrator into your systems as well. Um, so anyway, diversify within that system somewhat, but your main focus here is on your nut trees and that spacing 40 feet between your rows means that you can continue to go ahead and keep you know, mowing your hay and maintaining that space as you've had with minimal input. This can also be thought as sort of low input agriculture. Um, so then over the years, those trees begin to grow up and eventually transition the space. Uh, and draw in more and more wildlife. And I tell you, when you have a mature uh, producing chestnut and nut orchard, the animals come from 
all around. It is an absolute haven uh, for bears, for turkeys, for deer, you know, for all the critters, all the macro fauna are going to be drawn there, uh, as well as the humans. I mean, the chestnut is, is a very popular food in many parts of the world and growing in the U.S., um, economically viable as well. So, you know, you could be doing this for hunting, but this is also setting the stage to actually create a strong income in the future, if not for you, for the generations to come. Uh, when economies will likely be very different. And a lot of the economic opportunities that exist now may not be there in the future for your generations to come. So by planting these nut trees, you're also putting in the potential for a very secure long-term income producer. Uh, so again, stacking your functions, you know, you're feeding the ecology, you're feeding the wildlife, and you're creating an opportunity for food security and an economic niche for the humans. And that's why I love working with these systems is because they're addressing the whole system, even the economic system. Um, so again, I'll, I'll stop there and see, see where you <laughs> want to go. So one of the things that kind of came to mind, and, and I've read it something before, I can't remember what it was or where it was exactly, but um, talking about soil depletion and modern practices of soil. And you, I mean, you kind of touched base with that a little bit when you were talking in the beginning of what we started talking about here, but uh, that, that the soil is typically one year away without adding any type of nutrients to it or any type of uh, modern chemicals and things that it would be depleted within a year versus, um, you know, different types of practices. So how does that benefit you as far as, you know, doing the agroforestry versus that? Right. So, so agroforestry is a perennial system, perennial meaning something that, that typically lives for three or more years. It's your, usually your woody shrubs uh, and your trees. And really the wealth, the, the wealth that we have is the soil. You know, that it really everything is, comes back to the soil health as far as our true natural resource wealth and our economy. And it is rapidly lost uh, when you're doing annual agriculture, especially annual agriculture that uh, includes tilling of the soil. So whenever you're tilling the soil, you're opening it up for erosion. You're actually uh, exposing the, the, the soil biota and fungi and life. You're sort of killing that off. You're, ox you're putting too much oxygen into the soil. It burns up the organic matter. So really one of the most damaging practices that we have, both short and long-term, is our annual use and our annual cropping of land. Now, no-till agriculture has, uh, has been growing, and it's a, it's a step in the right direction. It's an improvement uh, by not getting in there and turning the soil over, uh, more direct seeding. There's now a lot of machinery that goes in and just kind of direct seeds into the rubble of the previous crop. Uh, but still, we're talking about an intensive use of the soil that, that, that typically depletes it. Now, the catch-22 here is that our diet is basically now uh, rigged on annuals. You know, there's kind of been this, this, um, this loop that, that's been, you know, intentionally created where, you know, we, you know, our diet is stimulated by the agriculture and the land use and the money that's made from that. 
uh, to where now, if you look at our diet, uh, it's 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 really it's really all annuals. Very few perennials in our diet. Whereas I think our species definitely developed with more perennial foods, uh, which also typically have a lot more nutrient density to them and a lot of other sort of medicinal values, bitters and other elements uh, that are healthy for our microbiome and our, our immune systems. So there's a lot of call and a lot of reason to be coming back to working with uh, perennials in, in agroforestry systems, uh, both from a, a land use health and our body health, which are totally interlinked. Um, and I think the more that we can produce, uh, especially culinary, very tasty foods from our agroforestry systems, then we'll start to see them more on our plates. And the more they're on our plates, the more they're going to be on our landscape, because what's on our plates is what is on our landscapes. Um, and we're spending money on our food. So, you know, there's there's ways to loop all this in. But coming back to to your, your point is that it, it really also preserves the soil and the soil is key and it takes quite a long time to build soil. Um, now, there are regenerative practices, like I mentioned earlier already with the um, with a passive water harvesting that will help regenerate soil very quickly. There's actually ways to work with livestock that can regenerate soil quickly by pulsing, you know, by, by moving your animals, you know, in short periods on a piece of land can pulse it and actually uh, really rejuvenate. So there's some miscon, you know, there's a lot of, there's some, I wouldn't say, well, there's, there's some misconception in the sense that some people think that, uh, you know, having or eating animals is an environmental devastation. Now, that depends on how those animals are, are being uh, worked with. So in a conventional sense, absolutely. You know, you've got feedlots that are growing, uh, you know, GMO, soy and corn uh, to feed those animals is, is not... Um, you know, benefiting either the human or the environment. But when you work with these pulsing uh, ways of using animals on the landscape, uh, you can actually, it's actually been proven to be one of the most regenerative ways, one of the quickest ways to rebuild soil fertility is to use animals. So I won't go into that too much, but just know that it's not as, as black and white as uh, not eating animals is going gonna, is gonna to help, you know, change our environmental conditions. Uh, how we work with animals is important. How we work with the food we grow is important. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there again. So uh... <laughs> I, man, a lot of great information here. But so would that be considered kind of tied to the Serengeti practice or method of farming to where each animal kind of creates a symbiotic relationship with the land? Uh, certain animals put certain nutrients back in. Other animals take nutrients. Other animals browse back certain things that other animals won't eat and in turn creates a perfect balance, if you will. Is that kind of the concept behind Yeah. That? Yes, there's a lot behind that. Uh, all of those things. And, and I think even more particular, when we get to how do we work with this in our agriculture, <clears throat> our modern day agriculture, uh, there's a there was a, a biologist, um, an ecologist called Alan Savory. Uh, he's, he's still around. He's, he's actually, I think, like 86 years old now, uh, but spent a lot of his lifetime uh, living in Zimbabwe and in Africa and studying the natural patterns of wildlife animals and how they would, they would group together 
let's say you know you've got you know these these wild herds grouping together and and grazing and then all of a sudden a predator comes and boom what do they do when they get when it's time for them to run they actually defecate you know you you loot you 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 um you lighten your load and you take <laughs> off and the, he was observing that actually this pattern of of intensely and short-term grazing and leaving that fertility and then running off and not coming back to that space for quite some time allowed those areas to regenerate rapidly. So there was enough, you know, hoof pressure to create divots to help hold water. You know, there was the fertility that left behind, but then it was kind of pulsed and then they moved. And he's built, you know, a whole organization around around that called the Savory Institute. So I do, I do highly recommend looking up the Savory Institute for learning uh, certainly how we can work more with livestock on our landscapes to pulse it and to build uh, soil fertility. Um, and then of course, there's the, the other guru uh, down here in, in Virginia. Um, gosh, of course, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna blank on his name right now. Um, but I'll come up with here in a minute. I, and he's also, what's that? I know that the uh, one of the leaders, I won't say pioneers, but leaders in the industry of doing that method of farming is uh, something oak, white oak pastures or something like that down in Georgia. The guy's name is mm -hmm. Will Winans, Wainans, something like that. And he has an entire sustainable practice that, Gosh, it, I can't. It's the first, the first large-scale production USDA certified processing facility, but on site. So they don't transport the animals anywhere. They live their entire life on that piece of property, and they use every part from every animal to somehow benefit every other animal. So even some of the meat scraps or different things they take and they let uh, certain flies lay their eggs and larvae on on, uh, on those pieces and then they feed those to the chickens in turn producing better eggs and just it's a huge cycle and they graze geese and and ducks and everything in their pastures along with their their goats and uh cattle it's pretty interesting <laughs> there's a bunch of videos on youtube too that you can look up and and see that entire operation it's uh pretty cool yeah that's that's great and more of these innovative um, sort of more whole system, uh, you know, farming and food growing uh, examples are coming up and they're becoming commercially viable, you know, so they're, they're actually really making money, which I think is a key aspect of this, uh, only because that's what will get it into, you know, broad usage, instead of just staying, you know, part of a subculture. Uh, again, the, you know, the economics drive the, the landscape use. And I've realized this, you know, I lived 20 years in rural Latin America, you know, I lived where there were no stores and, and what you grew is what you ate. Um, and your neighbors were, were, were how you really survived. And I even in that environment really realized that for something new to take hold, it had to be economically viable. And in their situation, it had to be immediately economically viable uh, to step away from, from what they were relying on, uh, which unfortunately has, has, has become, uh, you know, annual, you know, cropping of things that really uh, make them very vulnerable to starvation um, and, and many other maladies. So a lot of my focus down there, again, was with perennial uh, food security 
and then as a result, also creating niche markets uh, from those perennials. So again, just looking how to stack functions. Uh, but here in the U.S., it's the same situation in a different way where, you know, the economy is what drives, you know, our land usage and what we take interest in. So my focus uh, with a lot of my work with agroforestry and with the nuts is how do we make this commercially viable um, in all these different ways? So that's a great example that you that you just mentioned. Uh, and it, it almost harks a little bit to biodynamics. So biodynamic farming is a wonderful whole system, um, you know, farming more usually typically along the market scale farming uh, where the whole farm feeds itself, you know, each, each byproduct feeds another part and aspect of the farm so that it becomes more of a whole system, which makes total sense in that. And that really also gives it its own security and it's not so linear and, and relying on things from the outside which is a lot of what we're beginning to experience, uh, you know, globally, you know, as an issue, you know, we're realizing our vulnerability by relying on a linear system, by bringing things in from other areas, uh, you know, the, and as transportation is going to change in the future uh, based on oil reserves and, you know, polit you know politics and, all, you know, all the things that are going on um, are, are potentially going to shift you know, our systems. And the more that we can make things more circular and more whole system where we are in our regions, uh, you know, the better. And some of that takes planning, especially when you're talking about switching to perennials, which is why now is very important time to be doing this. Because in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're likely to be dealing with very different systems and having these things in place will make a world of difference. No, that's great. So a few of the things that kind of come to mind when we talk about these uh, perennials versus annuals, and a lot of people, they plant, especially for managing land for whitetails, they want large antler growth. And in order to do that and have great antler growth, they're planting things that give them high nutrients and minerals in certain categories. And you know, if, if your soil is semi-depleted, you're going to have to add a lot mm. more and it's going to be more cost inhibitive. I don't even know if that's the right word I'm looking for there, but inhibitive to your, your uh, maximum amount of output to you have to put a bunch more chemicals and everything in the ground in order to get these certain annuals to produce all these different minerals that these animals need for large antler growth. Um, and it just kind of makes me think that I mean, what's what's the trade-off or the benefit there with the the agroforestry and your different annual or perennials that are growing? Yeah. You know, yeah, great question because you know also is the same for humans. You know, what's the nutrient value in the food that we're eating? You know, we don't have antlers, but you know, you know, we need nutrient dense food to to really thrive and to be healthy. And that's something that's really largely missing from the foods that we're eating today. Sometimes even the organic foods does not mean that you're having a higher nutrient density. Really that comes from your soil. And largely you're right, the mineral content in your soil is a key aspect to what is you know, harvested from it. So you're talking about deers, but you know we can say <laughs> the exact same thing for humans here. Um, and, and the mineral, you know, so with perennials in your tree crops, 
you, you've got deep roots. These roots are typically reaching down into subsoils where there's, you know, minerals in storage uh, and other elements that are usually sort of lost uh, and not present in the, in the topsoil. Um, depending on how the land's been used, but it brings up some more of this deep nutrient from the deep soil and, and has a higher nutrient and mineral density in the nuts and the fruits and the perennial foods in general. I mean, if we just think about like asparagus, you know, these kind of foods have a little more density, nutrient density, because they've been living in that soil and absorbing, you know, what it has for a longer period of time in a perennial no-till situation. So fertility can build up more and that will translate into the foods that are eaten. Um, a great resource for learning about this, I will throw out there, is the Bionutrient Food Association, uh, a wonderful association that is really giving very direct understanding and education about how to work with uh, building soil fertility and minerals is a key part of that. And a lot of times, like where we're at, there's quarries nearby um, that are, you know, that have these big piles of stone dust that are a byproduct of their quarry work. And typically it's very high mineral content and we can go pick it up for free. They usually don't have anything to do with it or you pay a minimal amount for it. Uh, so oftentimes there's very inexpensive um, high quality minerals nearby that you can access. Otherwise you go online and you look up and you can order it from a different part of the country or the world, uh, which you know has its own impacts. But um, if that's all you have access to on a smaller scale, maybe buying some of those minerals uh, and adding them to your soil because they do get depleted. They get washed out, they get leached, they get eroded out. And the minerals are, you know, one of the more challenging aspects to sort of reintroduce into rebuilding your soil, um, you know, because they come basically from weathered, uh, you know, rock over eons. So that might be one thing. There's very few things that I would usually say, yeah, you know, really bring in and add things to your system. But, uh, you know, sort of a one-time recharge with minerals uh, after you've assured that you're really not going to be losing them to more erosion uh, is, is a good investment. Uh, now I use, I use a lot of wood chips. Uh, I use a lot of hugel culture, you know, a lot of just, you know, woody mass where possible, straw, hay, if that's available. You know, I layer, layer, layer organic matter as much as possible. We use cover crops, you know, do all of these aspects to really build up that soil organic matter and fertility. And then, you know, your soil will produce, you know, if you're giving it the right conditions, it will be producing, you know, most of what your plants need and most of what we need or the deer or any of the animals eating from those soils need. So I'm kind of curious, uh, we've covered the nut trees and planting in between, but we haven't really covered what kind of things could go in that landscape. What would be some of the things besides like your shrubs or bushes or things like that? Yes. Okay, great question, because, you know, of the of the handful of noted practices of agroforestry, uh, I would say the one that's getting the most attention is silvopasture. So sil silvo, silva is, is Latin um, for, for trees, for forest. Uh, so silvopasture is the, you know, the deliberate integration of trees and graving livestock, uh, whether that's cattle or sheep. 
Uh, it could even be turkeys and other, other types of uh, livestock that you're raising. Uh, and this actually has ancient roots. Um, a, a very famous example is in, in Spain, the uh, Deza uh, oak savanna system there is where the famed Iberico ham comes from. So they, they, they're basically acorns uh, planted in sort of a low density so that you have a mixture of pasture and trees. And they'll also run the different livestock and the pigs through and finish those meats on the acorns. Or sometimes they'll store the acorns and keep them fed, you know, almost all year round uh, on acorns. And it creates an amazing flavor profile and value uh, to where, you know, it's probably, you know, in the hundreds of dollars uh, to be purchasing, you know, a pound or more of these, you know, of, 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 of the special Iberico ham uh, because it's because of its flavor profile. And that's also, you know, coming from these, these silvo pasture systems. Now, silvo pasture is, is by loose definition, low density uh, tree planting and pasture. I'd say uh, approximately 20% of your pasture would be in trees. And this would allow for you to have your continued grazing, but then also offer the added benefits of the trees, uh, both to the animals and to the sort of the entire ecosystem where they are. Uh, obviously shade makes a great improvement and uh, reduction of stress for your animals. They've done a lot of studies with, especially with milk cows, uh, where they've showed milk uh, increased production just by having shade. Imagine that. <laughs> it's amazing to me that you see these pastures and there's not a single tree uh, or one sad tree. And if you have one tree in a, in, a, in a pasture with a bunch of animals and they all start hanging out under it, that tree's probably going to die. You know, so you, you really got to diversify. Um, but there's a balance there to where you want to keep your pasture healthy, but you want to add in some additional fodders. Now, those trees could be things that drop nuts. They could be dropping fruits. Traditionally in the Southeast, a lot of uh, farmers grew mulberries. They grew Cornelian cherry, which is actually a fruiting dogwood. They grew the previously mentioned honey locust. Um, and a lot of the other nut trees, you know, on purpose for finishing and feeding their animals at different times of year. So they actually had a, a really good integrated mix of trees uh, that worked with their livestock. And a lot of that's been captured in, in a fabulous book uh, written over 100 years ago and still extremely relevant uh, by J. Russell Smith. Uh, and the book is called Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture. Uh, highly recommend reading this book. It's very enjoyable as well. He was a nurseryman um, and just an amazing observationalist and agriculturist who traveled the world as well and really observed what was working well in other systems and came back here and worked with a lot of nurseries and with the, and with the U.S. government in developing um, a lot of these trees for national food security, uh, for improved, you know, farming practices. Uh, and reading the book is very easy, like I say, and it introduces you to these characters, you know, to where you start to really take an interest in honey locust because you say, wow, that's how you can use it. And look at all these great things it does. And interestingly enough, some of the genetics from his work are still kicking around. Uh, and we've been collecting the seeds in our region and growing them out. 
Um, I just saw a friend of mine who's got a great site to check out called Crow and Berry. Austin Unruh uh, is, is here in Pennsylvania, and he started a, a, a business around helping people establish agroforestry systems. And I just saw that he does have some trees on his site for sale, and he does have some of these improved honey locust. Uh, so they can produce pods that are like a, a foot long, you know, three inches wide and, you know, a, a half inch thick. And inside these pods is this honeycomb, this green, yellow, very sugary, sweet uh, pulp that surrounds the seeds, very high in carbohydrates and nutrients. You know, we're talking like 35% sugar. Uh, per content there. So, I mean, Native Americans, I mean, and, and us in the future, I hope to come back to using it. Uh, it's being also used to be ground up and fed to livestock over the winter. So a lot of these foods that are grown in the silva pastoral system can be harvested and stored. Chestnuts, you know, they can be dried and stored as livestock feed as well. It doesn't have to be something that's directly eaten off the ground. Um, and so a pastoral system, sometimes it can be fodder, you know, those, those mulberries can also be uh, pollarded, which means, you know, they're cut at about five or six feet above the browse height so they can reshoot. And as, as they reshoot, you can come and you can, you can chop down some of those branches. And I tell you, mulberry leaves is one of the most favored fodders uh, for most animals. Most ruminants will just absolutely love eating up that mulberry. Uh, and then so you can you can combine that mulberry as a chop and drop fodder, and then it'll also drop berries. Uh, and as you're pollarding it, you're not allowing it to become such a huge tree so that you're not losing shade and pasture. So there's different levels that you can integrate or work with in silvo pasture systems from more, more intense usage, like you're getting in there and you're pollarding and you're feeding your animals, or you can just say, I'm just gonna let them be and there are gonna be oaks out there and it'll provide some benefits. So there's different intensities that you can work with. Um, but these systems are really also getting a lot of highlight and attention because they're showing themselves to be one of the best systems for uh, carbon sequestration. You know, obviously this is becoming more and more important on the planet. Uh, and there's a lot of research going into what actually, what practices are actually really doing something uh, for it. And Project Drawdown is a great research project that uh, reviewed uh, like a hundred different land practices, just practices uh, across the planet for their ability to absorb uh, carbon. And silvo pasture systems are like number nine on the list. So very high uh, in their effectiveness. So here we are again, combining functions. You know, how can we integrate trees that benefit the animals, that benefit the hydraulic cycles, that benefit the entire planet and carbon sequestration. So um, really highly recommend and encourage people who are interested in working with animals, already have animals, uh, to look into silvopasture systems information. There's a ton of information out there about silvopasture in particular. Any questions on, on that one? That's a lot, <laughs> a lot covered. But um, so, I mean, basically try and find different things that will thrive in your growing zone. Um, that will also benefit the animals at every time of the year, right? I mean, that's kind of the concept. Behind, well, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily, not necessarily like, every time of the year because that can be quite a challenge, you know, especially <laughs> you know, here, here in our north. But like I say, yeah, you could you could harvest and store a lot of these these tree products 
uh, for your livestock in the long run. Um, so silvopasture is, is one of the recognized practices of agroforestry. Alley cropping is another one. And alley cropping, uh, we worked with quite a bit in Latin America. Uh, it's in wide usage uh, in many parts of the world in Africa. Um, and I hope, you know, in our parts of the world, it, it will become more and more of a common practice because it's very economically viable and it really stacks the functions of, of continuing to work with annuals because to be realistic, we're not just going to switch our diets. Uh, I've noticed that living in other cultures that one of the hardest things to change is, is people's culinary habits. So I'm very realistic to that. Um, so when you're looking at sort of maybe transitioning or let's say diversifying and adding uh, tree crops and perennials to your existing farming system, which is largely based on annuals, which, which has you know, somewhat of a dependable uh, short-term income built into it, albeit vulnerable in my opinion, compared to perennials. Another benefit to perennials is their, is their resilience to changing climate, uh, inclement weather patterns, Whereas you can lose your annual crops and the revenue from them very quickly in, in floods, storms, hail, uh, and your tree crops are, are much more likely to withstand those occurrences and then still be productive and, and thus more uh, you know, stable as far as, as, your, as your economy goes as well. But to create a hybrid system, let's go back to that model of 40 foot spacing between your, your nut tree rows. Uh, or it could be persimmons and other things, depending on what your, your focus for those tree crops is. Um, it could be woody perennials, you know, in those, in those lines that you harvest and sell to the floral industry. So whatever it is, you've got your 40 foot spacing of your perennials. In between, especially in your early years, you've got this huge wide alley, you know, that uh, is either pasture or if it's been, if you're transitioning, say a cornfield, into this system, then you've got, you know, an open area to continue growing in. You can continue growing your corn in it, uh, though I think there's much more creative, you know, ways. And certainly economically, you could diversify that space. Uh, and let's say in the short term, you could grow asparagus in it. You could grow elderberries in it, which are also proving to be a good economic return within a couple of years of planting. They're very fast producers of a very uh, valuable, uh, medicinal berry. Uh, so a lot of people are, are experiencing good success with, uh, you know, growing and processing elderberries. Uh, you could do that in between these rows. Um, you could also, you know, do strawberries in those. Basically, you could do your short and even midterm cropping in these in between rows. And this is what we call alley cropping. And so as those trees mature up, you know, over, you know, a 10-year period, you'd begin to lose that alley cropping option if you were growing larger nut trees, let's say. Uh, but by that time, you will transition to harvesting your nuts, and the money you'll be making from your nuts will probably outdo everything anyway. So it's a great way to economically transition if you need that, you know, if you're relying on your land to provide your economics, that's a way to transition. There's quite a few people out there that are not relying on their land for their economic needs. You know, they own land uh, and they're probably not doing a lot with it. They probably just have hay on it because that's easy and they're making their money, you know, doing their job somewhere else. So, you know, you could go ahead and just, you know, continue cutting your hay, do your 40 foot, you know, spaced rows 
and just plant your trees in it. Really, you know, it's it's you make it work for for your landscape, for your economy, and you know, for your needs and for your your availability. You know, do you want low input, low maintenance, or do you do you need or want high input and high maintenance? These are all very easily tailored. Uh, and I've started to put some of this on my website, uh, Ecologia Design. I've uh, started some 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 posts about uh, different different levels of agroforestry. Uh, so don't feel like it has to be complicated. In some ways, this is one of the most low input agricultural systems on the planet. Uh, and a little bit of time and patience uh, will will bring along a lot of benefits. Yeah. No. I mean, especially in today's day and age, too. Time is seems to be vanishing at a more rapid rate than ever before. Maybe it's because so many things consume our time more or, or we, you know, have so much more that we're dedicated to. I, I'm not really sure how exactly that's happening, but somehow you and I talked about it. There's just less time to do all the things that we need to do or want to do. But I mean, if you could have something that's low input, low maintenance to where it's still benefiting you, with without your maximum output so you could focus your efforts on other things it just seems like the logical thing to do and, and, and it's quite a gift it's quite a gift to the future so you know i'm really kind of pointing toward a lot of landowners that have wealth in, in other other ways um that could be doing more with their land but often don't really know what to do um and this is why they pretty much just keep it in hay but you know, putting these trees in, whether you have an intention to use them or not, because this and this can take the pressure away. Because people are like, oh, what am I going to do? I got to take care of the nuts. You know, you don't have to do anything. You know, if you wanted to, just plant these trees. They'll live for hundreds of years. They're going to feed the wildlife. They're going to feed the ecosystem. And chances are, you know, within a couple of decades, there'll be more people needing and looking to work with those trees for income. So don't even necessarily think about too much of your current reality and your situation. Plant these nut trees. Don't worry if you interact with them or do anything. They will have a myriad of benefits um, for the future. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to add to anything or talk about well, that we didn't I'll, touch on? Well, I'll just mention the other categories. Uh, windbreaks is another major category for agroforestry. And when I look at when I look at landscapes, when I go out and consult and design on landscapes, the first two elements that I'm looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, are water and wind. <clears throat> and they both relate to each other very closely because if you're in an exposed environment, uh, you, you know, your wind is desiccating whatever you're growing. It's taking the moisture out. So ideally, you know, you're stacking your functions when you're designing to harvest water passively into the landscape and then design your windbreaks so that that water doesn't get, you know, whipped right out as well. So you can really combine that by, you know, say designing your swales on contour and then on your wind heavy sides, you know, go ahead and plant your windbreak, but you can also go ahead and make that a multi-purpose windbreak. You could put in things that would have nuts and fruits and medicinals, uh, maybe, you know, some of those woody perennials that you would cut for the floral industry, different, you know, hybrid willows, uh, you know, red oysier, dogwoods, you know, so you can really think diversely with those windbreaks as well and actually make them commercially viable if that's a need. 
Um, so that's another category, the riparian forest buffers. Uh, these are very um, popular. A lot of government agencies are doing a lot of plantings along streams that you'll see. Typically, they're, they're just doing, you know, very fast, easy to grow hardwoods um, that don't have the stacked functions of creating, you know, more food and or, you know, actually creating more economic opportunity for largely the farmers that are, are having that land turned into something that's not as productive in the name of, you know, preserving the health of the stream, but why not stack the function? Why not say, okay, well, great. We do need to protect our streams from runoff. We do need these riparian plantings, but why don't we go ahead and put nuts and fruits and all these other, you know, pawpaws and all these other great, you know, foods and fruits into that design. So a lot of good information out there about diversifying, uh, you know, your forest buffers around not just streams, but wetlands, ponds, any of your waterways. Um, and then, and, and I know you guys are into angling and fishing as well. And that shade over the water can help create, you know, better cooling conditions for certain types of fish. If it's mulberries, it can drop fruits and stuff right for the fish into the water. So really, you can tailor this to your interests, but try to maximize the effort of planting trees with having a myriad of benefits when you do it. I think is is kind of the. <laughs> Kind of the root of this, yeah. um, and then forest farming is another is another category. Forestry typically is you know working with land that's already open that's been degraded that needs regenerating, uh, but there's a lot of scenarios where working within an existing forest, um, which is kind of named forest farming, you can go in there and be creative with, you know, growing mushrooms, um, you know, planting ginseng, maybe growing ramps uh, and working with, you know, sort of what you have there in a way that supports the forest. Um, to those ends, I'll recommend a great book called Farming the Woods uh, by Steve Gabriel. And a lot of the stuff Steve Gabriel does, uh, his site uh, in his YouTube videos, he's an amazing, learned, experienced um, you know, agriculturist that's working with these perennial systems. So I highly recommend learning from him and exploring more of that. And then also another category is food forests. So food forests are also actually being recognized by the USDA as a, as a subcategory of agroforestry. <clears throat> and food forests are what I work a lot with and have worked with and I've captured in, in both my books. And typically food forest is done on smaller acreage because it's very diversified, you know, anywhere from an eighth of an acre or smaller, you know, up to a couple of acres. You know, I manage roughly three acres of food forests here at our, our permaculture site. And, and that's a maximum because that keeps me, that keeps me moving. And so food, food forests are not growing food in the forest. They're growing food like the forest. So they're these diversified, perennial based uh, orchards, if you will, that instead of just planting a tree by itself, you're planting in sort of a small ecosystem with it, what we call guilds. So you would put in other perennials that fix nitrogen, that draw in beneficial insects, um, that are, you know, draw on beneficial pollinators, you know, green mulch plants, things that will mulch the soil and hold it and build it for you. So food forests is another great category. A lot of great information about food forests in my books and on my website. 
uh, to learn from. So for the smaller suburban scale, uh, it's, a, it's a very appropriate agroforestry practice. So let's say somebody has, you know, maybe a five acre site that they do hunt on or something like that, that's on the edge of suburbia or something like that. Um, I mean, would that be a, a more attainable practice than the agroforestry on, you know, I guess that would be more of a macro scale versus a micro scale. So on a micro scale, would, uh, would a food forest be kind of a very beneficial thing for them and the wildlife? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, all of these systems, I mean, unless you're like fencing the, you know, fencing the whole area out, which I'm not really a big fan of uh, for many reasons, um, certainly with these types of systems. And so, yes, you know, you would be benefiting, you know, the wildlife, uh, the ecosystem at large. Uh, you could tailor it. You know, if you don't want to get overwhelmed, you don't have to go large scale to stick in some nuts, you know, stick in four or five uh, chestnut trees, stick in four or five northern pecans, stick in, you know, four or five select mulberries, stick in those honey locusts, stick in the persimmons, um, you know, give everything decent spacing if you don't plan to come back and thin them, you know, go 30, 40 foot spacing um, and think about, you know, how you might still manage that area if you mow it. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Um, it can really fit what you have the capacity to do, what you will actually do. And if that means, hey, just go out and plant five trees, then just go plant five trees. Don't worry about all the, you know, intricacies of what agroforestry is, you know, get their tree crops, you know, get them out there, get these, you know, ideally find good genetics. So the one thing I will encourage is, is to, you know, spend a little bit of time and maybe a few more dollars on getting the trees that have been selected by people who really are paying attention to the productivity and the quality of the fruits and the nuts that are, or the, or the pods that are being produced uh, versus, you know, what a, a state nursery or, you know, a nonprofit that's giving away trees might do. Uh, so, you know, being a little bit of effort can make a huge difference uh, in what's, what's grown there and what's produced there. And you're also inoculating your area when you plant something. So, let's say you have a select black walnut. So a select black walnut uh, has a thinner shell. It, the, it opens up and it cracks out large halves, you know, versus a, a you know, an unselected wild uh, black walnut would have, would probably be smaller. It would have a thick, hard shell and inside it would have many small compartments and the nuts would be hard to release, right? So let's say you're planting a select black walnut in that area, um, you know, it's going to produce nuts over hundreds of years and the squirrels are going to take those nuts and they're going to start spreading them around. And then you're going to have improved genetics for black walnuts in your region because you planted that tree, you inoculated your zone with those genetics. So, you know, I think it's one of the most valuable things we can do as humans uh, in, you know, in our interactions with the ecosystem is to bring in and help propagate these, these amazing genetics. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking about the, uh, the, the riparian forest buffers was uh, right now there's a huge problem on one of my local rivers that a lot of runoff. And a long time ago, Illinois and Indiana on the border, they had a deal that they were going to clear cut and dredge the river, make it wider for barge traffic. And in doing so, they 
stretched it out, made it wide open, no trees, all this different stuff. Now all of a sudden you've got all this runoff that's happening. Thank God that Illinois backed out of that deal right at the very end. So right on the border, it's not clear cut. It's all the original with all the backflows and slews and different things. But there's so much runoff right now. It's creating such a problem that their core of engineers and everybody else for like the past 10, 15 years has been getting together, trying to figure out a way to one, stop it and prevent it, but also how to remove it because there's so much runoff that it's actually filling, causing more flooding because it's shallowing the river and it's turning it into a, a big, big problem. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a kind of a cool gorilla move for that gorilla planting move. You know, let's say you're, you know, you're, you're in your canoe or something going down that river, get a bunch of willow stakes and you can get hybrid willow stakes. You can take a two foot uh, cutting of a, of a willow stake, let's say the size of your thumb uh, or potentially even bigger and, and other types of, of woody cuttings that take very easily. The willow is the most obvious. And as you go down that stream, take a take a mallet and just 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 slam those cuttings <laughs> into the bank, right? And they'll root, and then over time, that'll begin to actually hold that soil and begin to shade the river, and the roots and all of that will then begin to you know sort of repopulate that stream. So you can do that, you know, on any streams you're at where you see it kind of eroded and and you know all of that happening have a bundle of these cuttings and go and just <laughs> stick them in there do it yourself because you know you can't really wait necessarily for someone else to do it and if you're out there already it's a great way to do it um a good resource for a lot of cuttings is ernst seeds uh e-r-n-s-t <clears throat> they're up here in pennsylvania but they have a section where um they just sell all these different cuttings that will root by sticking them in um and then also i'm a big willow fan and vermont willow has a great collection of many types of hybrid willows that have many benefits. Uh, many of them are great pollinators and great bee uh, providers, fodder uh, for the bees and many other uses. The willow is really a dynamic species to work with on many levels, but it will just root. You just stick it in the ground as a, as a cutting at the right time and you'll get a, you'll get a bush or a tree from it. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid to get out there and stick some, <laughs> stick some, stick some willows in the bank. Yeah. No, what's, what I find funny is that Indiana, because they clear cut all of their land almost all the way up to the border, uh, they have been more proactive about it because they've seen the effects sooner than Illinois has. But now it's starting to slowly migrate and Illinois is starting to have more and more of a problem with it. And like I said, they've been meeting for about 15 years now trying to come up with a way to mitigate the problem. And I think finally they've just made enough headway to where they've got some funding to where they are going to dredge that out and have a management program in place. Uh, Whereas Indiana has had that program in place and is actually doing better than we are for quite some time now. So it's kind of interesting to watch all that unfold. But yeah, like you said, waiting on the government to do something, sometimes uh, the bureaucratic process takes a little too long and it's almost a little too late at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, hopefully, hopefully you, hopefully you got a good scope there. And there's lots of great information out there for exploring more in agroforestry. Uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm a big fan. It's where my work and my life is is going. Um, so if, you, if you're interested in learning more, stay tuned to, uh, to my site. Absolutely. Michael, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. Once again, uh, wealth of knowledge and uh, 
a lot to consume and comprehend right there. So it's definitely going to going to be cool to try and digest all of this and see where it takes me. Last time you and I talked, my head was reeling with different ideas and I've already put some of those into action. So it's pretty cool to uh, once again, have you on. So before we go, can you tell everybody where to find you, your information, your sites, and I will put links in the episode show notes. So it'll be there for everybody to click on and go to as well. Yeah. The the main, the main landing page for me is, is Ecologia uh, design. And from there, you you would be able to see, you know, where else I'm act, interacting um, on social medias, which I'm getting ready to take a pretty good break from. <laughs> we'll see how much I come back to it. But, uh, you know, the Ecologia site and my books uh, are, are great resources. And I have lots of links. And my site's very educational, a lot of how-to on my site. Uh, so you could really surf around there. We do a lot of uh, good workshops, hands-on tours here at our site. Uh, I have a small nursery that I open up uh, limited time in the spring um, and connections with other nurseries that uh, that provide a lot of the good genetics. I also list there. So yeah, just find me there and 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 thank you. Thank you for for hosting. Uh, and I guess a, a leaving thought, you know, as we as we look at the world and sometimes feel overwhelmed, uh, is that uh, when in doubt, plant nut trees. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for coming on. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv i'm will cooper host of HuntStand's make your mark podcast for even more content be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand presents on the waypoint tv channel every tuesday at 10 p.m eastern visit waypointtv.com to learn more